0: Um, Got some heard some interesting critique this week on um, the book that we've been going through gentle and lowly and I was going to say for anyone who's visiting or just does not have a copy of this, you're free to grab a a free one on the uh, welcome table, but I'm looking at the welcome table there and not seeing any books, so we'll try to have them there by the end of the service uh, for you. Please don't hesitate to take that, but the critique was this. um, You know, actually, Gentle and Lowly is like every other evangelical book that I've ever read. Uh, The author tells you everything you need to know in the first chapter, and then he spends the rest of the book just trying to sell it. He just repeats it over and over and over again. I will tell you that the book Gentle and Lowly in this series are purposely repetitive. Because we are taking a diamond off the shelf and looking at different facets of it all the time. Formation and reformation require repetition. You know, Emily Dickinson said something fascinating. She she wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Because we often learn things when we come at them from different angles than from just the same angle all the time. You know, if I, if I say to the group who uh, meets for morning prayer several morning, mornings a week, I say, let us bless the Lord, what is your immediate response? Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. It's because we say this over and over again, and it's because in the liturgy, that is a reminder that the way that we bless the Lord is by gratitude to him. So it's not just two disconnected statements. It's actually teaching us something about our posture toward God and how we bless him. There's a a great video that um, you can find on the internet very easily. It's by just a delightful engineer. And um, he does this series called Smarter Every Day. And in one of the videos, one of his shop workers in the place where he works has given him a bike. And it's a bike that when you turn the the handlebars right, the front wheel goes left. And when you turn the handlebars left, the front wheel goes right. So he dared him to try to ride it. And he couldn't. And it actually took him 10 months of one hour every day to learn to ride that bike. And finally, he mastered it. But it's because it takes repetition, something we have, to, we, have to, we have to do over and over and over again before we can be kind of unformed and reformed in a different way, to create different neural pathways so that when we think about God, we understand that he has a particular posture toward us. We never doubt that, we never miss it, we never don't think about it because we're assuming it. Because we know what practice makes, right? It makes habit. One of the things that uh, this engineer says at the end of this video is that his biggest insight from this is knowledge does not equal understanding. So we really, What to move. The point of this series, the point of this book is that we move in some way from knowledge, because we can all give assent to that. We move in some way from knowledge to understanding. Some, I would say most of us, need to unform and reform how we see the Father's heart for us. We need to move as I said, from knowledge to understanding that God's most natural posture toward us is not an accusing, pointing finger. It's not arms crossed. It's arms open wide. So here we go again. You might have heard some of this before. Last week we looked into the Old Testament for a glimpse of the Father's heart for us and We will this week as well. This is important because when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, he doesn't go off in a different direction from the heart of the father revealed to us in the Old Testament. Rather, he clarifies and expands and sharpens our understanding of the heart of the father. Because the heart of Christ is the heart of the father and the heart of the father is the heart of Christ. Last week, we learned from the book of Lamentations. This week, we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah, which is just before Lamentations in the Old Testament. Both of these books speak to the Babylonian exile, God having warned and warned and warned his people to turn from their rebellion and their stiff arming to follow him. But they continue to go their own way. And so finally, he allows, God allows Babylon to come in judgment and destroy Jerusalem and take God's people captive and carry them off into Babylon. As you can imagine, this is a major inflection point in the history of the nation. And both of these books, Lamentations last week and Jeremiah this week, relates specifically to that event. Jeremiah was one of the prophets that lived and preached right around this time. The book of Jeremiah is a very long prophecy, 52 chapters broken effectively into three sections, a long section, a short section, and another long section. Chapters one through 29 are of God's judgment on his people for the way in their sinfulness and rebelling, they're refusing God and his goodness. Chapters 30 through 33 are a small section. And chapters 34 through 52 are another long section, essentially on God's judgment of Babylon. By the way, Patrick, it's, it feels like it's getting hot in here. Would you mind turning the the, thermostat back on I turned it off before church because it was the heat was on and so I think that we're now needing just lower left corner cool you know I don't know why but dads kind of know how to do that intuitively because <laughs> we're always trying to save electricity we're right? like <laughs> doesn't need to be this warm in here it's too cold in here anyway Get a blanket, put on us, and I yeah, trust, me, trust me. Trust yeah, me. I know. I know. So it's this long prophecy, long section, short section, long section. The middle section, chapters thirty through thirty-three, are what scholars call the book of consolation, or not like consolation prize, or the book of comfort. It's consolation in the form of comfort. It it is where God draws near and makes the main point of the entire book, namely that God is refusing to cast his people off for good despite their waywardness. So in the middle of his rightful judgment, God speaks consolation and hope to them. This is such a powerful thing and we're going to study today from the middle of that short book of comfort. To set the stage, though, I want to read just a few of the indictments from the first 29 chapters. In Jeremiah 1.16, God says through the prophet, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil, and forsaking me, they have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Chapter 3, verse 2, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom, pointing to their spiritual adultery. Chapter 4, verse 14, oh, Jerusalem wash your heart from evil that you may be saved how long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you and finally I'm not going to read through all 29 chapters finally chapter 5 verse 23 this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart they have turned aside and gone away I could go through all 29 chapters if you wanted me to, but I think you probably get the idea. For 29 chapters, God is speaking to and against the sin of his people. Then right on the heels of these indictments comes this, what feels almost parenthetical book of comfort, but it's not parenthetical at all. It's the point of the entire book. Just one more thing before we get there. I I had this lovely teacher in seventh grade her name was Linda Hammond, and I didn't know she had a first name when I was in seventh grade. I didn't find it out until many years later. She wrote in my yearbook to Steve, the giggliest and wiggliest boy I've ever known. She should have just written, Dear Steve, you have ADD, go see a doctor. Miss Hammond. But she, she taught English. She had this wonderful big poster up on the wall in her classroom above the, above the blackboard, and it said, just one word, with an exclamation point, tangentialize. What she was trying to do is get seventh graders to tell stories, even if they seemed like tangents when we were writing, and I, I, I have never forgotten that, and I often tangentialize as well, but I'm going to take that advice today and take just a little tangent that I hope will, you'll, will also help us, though, set the context for this verse in Jeremiah 31 we're going to look at. There can be a tendency for Christians as we engage the Bible to pull verses out, especially inspirational verses or promises or axioms, just right out of their context. We quote them and we write them and we engrave them and we embroider them. For example, have you ever heard someone at church say to you when they're mystified at some event or episode in their life, wondering at the providence and the sovereignty of God, well, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. So he must be ruling my life in some mysterious way that I don't fully comprehend. But actually, when we read it in its context, Isaiah is speaking about something different in God than merely his divine sovereignty and the governing and ruling of our lives according to this passage what we don't fully comprehend about God is that he abundantly pardons he absolves he forgives he embraces us in a way that defies our natural intuitions and instincts about the way he works he's talking about God's invincible and indefatigable love for his own And he's saying God is very deeply different than us. When it comes to mercy and love and patience, we're the cold, calculating ones, not God. That's one. Here's another. And I may get in some trouble for this one at home later. (laughs) Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the most widely used verses we look to for hope. It's a beautiful and powerful and hopeful verse, and I want us to see it in its context. I'm pretty sure you'll recognize it. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a powerful verse because it says God has a plan that his future for you is not one of evil, but it's a future of welfare and hope, thanks be to God. We should, however, understand this promise in its context. Starting just one verse before, in verse 10, this is what it says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and i will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and i will hear you then you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart then I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. Jeremiah says, Babylon has taken you captive, and despite what these other false prophets around you have told you about it all being over soon, kind of like inflation is transitory, they're going to forcibly hold you in exile for 70 years. Then, after an entire generation is dead, I'm going to restore you and I'm going to make a way for you to get back where you belong. And we know from history it will require an enormous amount of faith and effort and peril on your part because I have a plan and a future for you. He doesn't say, hey, tomorrow or maybe uh, at the latest next week, things are going to be great. Just hang in there because every day in every way, things are getting better and better. It's not an optimistic abstraction, this verse Jeremiah 29 11. it's concrete and specific in 70 years my plan will unfold for you this future and this hope I have for you when we pull this beautiful promise we should understand its context as with Israel God's plans for our good and for his glory are not on our timetable again this is in chapter 29. It comes right at the end of the Book of Judgment. And it serves as our introduction to the Book of Comfort in chapters 30 through 33. And we're going to look at just one verse. Then I'm going to walk us through it phrase by phrase. I hope well. Jeremiah 31:20, right in the middle of the Book of Comfort. I talked last week about the prominence of the middle part in Hebrew poetry. So this is something we should pay attention to. It may be the best summary of what God is saying in this section of scripture. Chapter 31, verse 20. You've got it printed in your bulletin. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. It's a simple verse and there's so much we need to hear. So let's walk through it phrase by phrase. He starts by asking two rhetorical questions. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? The answer is an emphatic yes, yes, Ephraim, another name for God's own Israel. Ephraim is your darling child. There are many other places in the Old Testament in particular where God refers to Israel as his son or his daughter, but he goes a step beyond that here, darling. Is it shared in the email that I wrote this week, some friends called us earlier in the week and it was not good news. They were calling us to enlist us to pray for a son who by his own hand had put his own life, his marriage, and his children in peril. Their call for us did not have the tone of anger or Judgment, even though they were getting ready to get on an airplane to go and help. It was yearning, yearning for their darling son. I'm not trying to anthropomorphize God. I'm not trying to say God is just a big, supersized us. But when we feel those things, that's a signpost. God's own heart. Can you hear the heart of God, my darling he goes on to say, for as often as I speak against him, remember this follows on the heels of 29 chapters of poems speaking against his son, speaking against his sin, speaking against his spiritual adultery, speaking against him over and over and over. The sin of his people is a serious matter. It's not something to be swept under the rug or brushed off. It's critical because it's, it fissures relationship." And so he speaks against his son, 29 chapters, but then he goes on, for as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He doesn't need to cognitively try to remember something. Remember here is a covenantal term. It's a remembering in love. It's a recalling his great mercy and love. My loving remembrance swallows up all my speaking against him. I will not forsake you. Though you have broken it, I will keep my covenant to you. And then we read, therefore, my heart, there it is. Therefore, my heart yearns for him because he's my dear son, because he's my darling child. My heart yearns for him. That's what the therefore is there for. What what is it to yearn? It's something different than to bless or to save or even to love. The Hebrew word here denotes being restless or agitated or even growling or roaring or being boisterous or turbulent, which as a pilot got my attention. And we understand that when we talk about the deep affliction, the yearning of our heart. We're not referring to a physical organ. We're talking about what's deep inside us. In fact, the word heart here is unusual to, to the other uses of heart in the, uh, in the Hebrew uh, Bible. And it can, can, it can mean internal organs, or belly, or womb, or one of my favorites, bowels. It's the Hebrew way of expressing not just feeling, but innermost desire my heart, my guts, the deepest part of me. King James Version did a yeoman's job of of trying to remain true to this. It says, for since I spake often against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. (laughs) The word of the Lord. He's just expressing his innermost being, his yearning. And what does it say his heart is yearning for? My heart yearns for my darling son. He's not just speaking of Israel here collectively. He's also speaking about every single one of his own individually. My heart yearns for my own. And to my mind, what makes this so amazing about this in context is just remember what we've seen. 29 chapters of you are in sin, your ways are adulterous, you have ignored me and ignored my ways, and I'm warning you, judgment is coming. Nothing good is going to come of the way you're going. You must turn back to me or you will suffer for 29 chapters. And yet, though I speak often against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. Here's how Dane Ortlund expresses this in his book. Do you see what God is revealing about himself, what he's insisting on? His capacious affections for his own are not threatened by their fickleness because pouring out of his heart is the turbulence of divine longing. There's something within the heart of God that turns over, that's moved by you. His heart yearns for you. And it's not contingent on your fickleness or my fickleness. Our going our own way, our doing our own thing. Our hearts are being turned in a different direction. But his yearning heart for you is not contingent. He speaks clearly to our sinfulness. And yet, he says, my heart yearns for you. And the last phrase in Jeremiah 31, 20, I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. When he says mercy, he's talking about love and compassion and pity. The Hebrew is kind of clunky to translate here word for word because it's repetitive. It reads something like, I will have mercy, have mercy on him. King James says, having mercy, I will have mercy. This repetition was the Hebrew equivalent of an exclamation point, or or as an exclamation point used to be. Now we need like 43 of them if we want to make something truly emphatic. But this was the Hebrew way of making something emphatic. The emphasis here when he says, I will surely have mercy, the emphaticness, which I know is not a word, but I can't think of a better one. The emphaticness is mercy, God's most natural work. So how do we apply our lives to this truth? The book of Jeremiah, the context, is God speaking to his darling child, Israel. Obviously we're not Israel, but we are, in Christ, his own, his own darling children. And what we're shown in the New Testament is that the Father's heart yearns for us, too. You know how we know his heart yearns for us today and not just Israel way back then? Because he sent his dear son, Jesus, for you and for me. He sent his one and only darling son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our place, to pay for our sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, the story of our lives contains at least 29 chapters of sin and rebellion and doing our own thing and living for ourselves. Every one of us has at least 29 chapters. It's all about us. And a morally serious God, a God who's just and does what's right and executes justice in all his ways, cannot stand by and allow our sin to go untouched. A just God must deal with our sin. And yet, what we see is that the heart of God for us is a heart of mercy and love and compassion, a heart that's gentle and lonely. So how does God reconcile his justice with his heart toward us? There's only one way. He sent his son, Jesus. Romans 3 tells us that in the wisdom of God's plan, he was able to put our sin upon his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sin so that we could have, so that we could receive mercy. We pray this every week in the the Eucharistic prayer so that you and I could become his darling child because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we have loved God, not that that we have yearned for him, but his love isn't dependent on where we're at in the moment. No, in this is love that we, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is a word we don't hear much, but what it means is that Jesus' sacrifice satisfies the justice of God. And so how do we know the Father's heart is for us? His innermost being yearns for us the way that it did for his darling child Israel? He sent his dear son, Jesus Christ, So the yearning of the Father's heart is you. It's you. I don't know what the state of your life is in this moment, what's going on in your innermost being, but God does. He sees you. And we used to sing a little song when I was younger called God's Gonna Get You For That. And you can imagine how it goes. But basically, you can't run and you can't hide because he knows where you're at. This is not the Bible. He sees you. And his heart yearns for you. Again, Dane Ortland from the book. Whom do you perceive to God be God him to be in your sin and your suffering? Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? His saving us of us is not cool and calculating. It's a matter of yearning. Not yearning for the Facebook you. The you that you project to everyone around you. Not the you that you wish you were. Yearning for the real you. The you underneath everything you present to others. As I said in the beginning, some, I would say most, of us need to unform and reform how we see the Father's heart for us, for the real us. We need to move from knowledge to understanding that God's most natural posture toward us is not an accusing, pointing finger, it's not arms crossed, it's arms open wide, and the only thing. His darling children need to do is simply to fall into his tender embrace. His heart for us is gentle and lowly. Thanks be to God.